Hello and welcome to Who's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about Free Guy today. Video game movie. You love these? You know all about video games? I, I have honestly never played a video game in my life. I tried once with you and I was just too... Um, I was just too old. My fingers weren't moving fast enough. I couldn't get the hang of the thumb action. <laughs> yeah, it's the first time you'd had to go on a, a games console. You, I'm sure you've played games like on your phone. Casual games. With but only old people's games. I've played like word games and solitaire. I think that's about it. Yeah. This is based in a massively multiplayer online world. So it's, it's based on games like Grand Theft Auto Online and Fortnite, which is these kind of big worlds. You have loads and loads of players all causing chaos at once. Mm. I don't really play these games. I know a little bit about them, but they're not really my kind of thing. Part of the thing about these games is that they are kind of licenses to print money for the publishers. Mm. Um, I mean, billions, literally billions of dollars, because you, you sell costumes, you sell guns, you sell dances, you sell all this shit to kids. Mm. You, I mean, with Fortnite in particular, something like Fortnite, you give them a free game. So this is this game is called Free World or something like that, Free City. The game in this film is called Free City, and I'm sure the idea is that it's a free game. It's not really, you know, they don't tell you. Well, no, they don't tell you that um, actually. But you know, I think I, it hints at the opposite, you know, because they're, they're making so much money out of it. Well, the point is, they're making money. If this is like those games, the way they make money is they sell you stuff. They sell you cosmetic items and things like that. That's how these games, right. but you know, so they get you in. Of course, <laughs> the film is not in the business of. Uh, insulting its audience or criticizing them, so it's not going to say you're all mugs for buying this stuff. They just don't. It's hidden. You know, they don't talk about anything like that. Um, same way, they also don't talk about gamers being toxic. I mean, it's kind of mentioned a little bit. The Jodie Comer character is the only girl in the game, mm. and she she's she's a real person, right? And so she's the one saying all the guys around here, every person you bump into is just a, a adolescent man child, mm. you know, blowing stuff up and things. And you go, oh, that's that's, a, that's about as critical as the film gets of gamers you know mm-hmm. and actually real life gaming is so toxic you know, online so toxic so so offensive and awful it's awful mm-hmm. you know horrible horrible place to be <laughs> no one should do it um the film isn't in the business of of saying any of that you right. know so it's quite a quite a bowdlerized tame thing mm-hmm. um and actually seems quite friendly and so on um and in fact there's also hardly any violence there's a lot of kind of cartoony and off-screen violence there are guns all over the place and cars crashing but if the film were anything like as violent as Grand Theft Auto really is, the film would have to be an 18, and it's a 12A. Okay, that's interesting, because I was also thinking, this is a very light film, it's a, it's a comedy, mm. and what, what I thought you meant by the violence was the kind of, you know, an emotional violence, <laughs> which the film doesn't have at all. Right? No. Like, uh, you know, it's very light, it's very sweet, it's meant to be like, you know, in the typical Ryan Reynolds vein of making nerdiness lovable, you know, uh, which I think he really succeeds at. I thought, you know, I think we've spoken of him quite a lot lately because he's been in quite a few films, and I was thinking, oh, you know, this brand of, you know, comic hero. Yeah, it, you know, was beginning to grate with me, and yet the last two times, anyway, Mm. he really has won me over each time. I agree with you. This and Hitman's Wife's Bodyguards. Yeah. He's got me back a little bit. Whereas actually, the one I think is getting a bit tired and overexposed is Taika Waititi, who's in this as ultimately the villain, the yes. boss of this game company, 
who wants to avoid a lawsuit and all this kind of stuff and just doesn't watch himself. He's not very good. He's not very good. He's not really an actor. I and mean, he, he keeps being put in stuff because he's likable and he's a recognisable face. People, you know, he's done the Thor movies and stuff. People like him. And he, he played Korg in Thor Ragnarok, yes. which he directed. And he was good. Yes. Well, but I like very him, but he's not very good in this. He's getting a little bit overexposed in the way that Ryan Reynolds was. I think this is not just a question of overexposure. It's actually a question of him not being very good at it. <laughs> you know, I think... Uh, you know, he's very likable, he's meant to be very funny, but actually he doesn't get the laughs that he's meant to. So he neither gets the laugh, nor is he as scary or threatening or, you know, violent as he's meant to evoke either. So yeah. I think he really fails on, on both, you know, both extremes, really. Whereas Ryan Reynolds, I think what, I mean, as if it wasn't already confirmed that he's a star, this kind of film is really about, it's not just you put him in the film because he's a star, the film is built around his, his persona, persona, and that's a very different thing. And I was thinking about that watching the film, because it strikes me that he's got a very original uh, star persona, yeah? yeah, that it's almost like an archetype, it's like, so I think he finally became like this big star when he began to personify something that was new. I there had been. Um, I, I mean, there's always precedence for things and context for things, and one can relate this comic figure a little bit to, you know, Danny Kay or to the cowardice of Bob Hope in the past. Yeah, mm -hmm. but actually, you, I can't think of, you know, a comic actor who kind of evokes that kind of sweet, nerdiness, awkwardness, but also physical skill. Yeah. And, um, mm -hmm. I mean, I can't think of anyone. No, it's hard to think of a, a really direct precedent for his sort of persona. Because yeah. he's nerdy, but intelligent. And also, you know, he's not after sex like uh, Bob Hope. Yeah, he's sweet. Yeah, and yeah, and intelligent. Uh, and looking for romance, yeah. So I think, I think actually he is embodying something that, while it might not be new in the individual components, it's new as an ensemble of characteristics. Yeah. Mm. Um, we should briefly say what the film is actually about. So yes. he plays this non-player character. Do you know what an NPC is, Jose? No. <laughs> Do you know what it is from having seen the film? No, actually, I still don't. <laughs> an NPC is a character who is in a video game who you don't play. So he, he might be a uh, yeah, guy just, on the street. Like an extra. Right, so he's the background character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is not the first uh, film that's really got into the kind of minutiae of how video games sort of work in the modern context, because we've had things like Ready Player One, and we've had Wreck-It Ralph 1 and 2, and these films are talking about, you know, they're based on assuming that you know this culture. And I suppose what that means is that the culture has become big enough for them to be able to make a reasonable assumption that you know about it. So not you specifically, but that there is a big enough audience out there that they don't need to explain this stuff very much. It might be worth saying that I enjoyed the film very much without knowing anything about games. Yeah, okay. So Guy's a non-player character. He gets up in the morning, he goes to work, he has coffee, it's always the same coffee, he speaks to his friend who's a security guard, works at the bank, he works at the bank, he's a teller, and he goes home in the evening, and that's his cycle. Right? It's a bit like Groundhog Day, the way that it's introduced, yeah? Yeah, and of course every day there's chaos going on around him, so this is the kind of fundamental sort of weirdness about this world, is he's living a very normal life, and also it's just par for the course that there are cars crashing, people shooting off rocket launchers, every day the bank gets robbed, mm. That's a, and as, as it turns out, that's a mission, right? So you get these people who wear sunglasses, and they don't really have any conception of what these people are, other than we don't get to wear sunglasses, they get to wear sunglasses, and the sunglasses people are all the ones who are causing all the chaos. He meets this girl who's wearing sunglasses, 
and sort of becomes infatuated with her. It doesn't really make sense. Right? That's not what he does. He doesn't get infatuated with people, but he somehow met the girl of his dreams. One thing leads to another. He winds up sort of gaining a little bit of sentience, a little bit of consciousness. Mm. He manages to steal himself a pair of these sunglasses, and they're like the sunglasses in They Live. So he puts them on, and he suddenly he sees messages everywhere. Mm. And these messages, they don't say, you know, you are a slave. They say, mission. They mm. say, coins. There's First a health aid. pack. Yeah, first aid health kits, right? And you're going, what's all this? And of course, for a video game, and this is the stuff that builds up a video game, right? It's not, it doesn't look like most video games, it's a little bit more showy, but this is, you know, a video game context that's being laid over his real life city. So the story is about him developing this consciousness, pursuing this girl, and then you also get this second half of the story, which has nothing to do with him, or less to do with him, which is set outside the video game. You actually see a lot of the real world outside the video game, and it's about the people who made it. Has the video game been stolen from them? This girl is in there looking for evidence mm. that will support her lawsuit against the guy who owns the game, Taika Waititi, mm. uh, to show that he stole it from her. So that's one of the interesting things about the film, because you initially think this is the film's world. Yeah, so the film creates a world, it offers it to you, you begin to see drama unfolding. And then, I don't know, I would say maybe, you know, between a third and a half of the way through, you say, oh, this is not the world. <laughs> yeah, this is not only a world within the film's world, but actually it's an artificial world. It's just a game, right? So, yeah, so, so I thought that was kind of like an interesting kind of narrative development. And then, of course, how the film then brings both of those worlds together into a kind of a coexistence. Yeah, and all through the idea that, you know, this algorithm is the first uh, signs of artificial intelligent life. Yeah, so what transfer? I mean, I would say, I think, it's, I think it's probably pushing it a bit to say it was the third or half the way through. I think it's quite quick that you start to see the outside world, I think. Oh, maybe. I mean, I, well, I, and also I think the thing is, <laughs> although you're right that the, 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 the world that you're shown, the, the free city world, is shown to you as the real world, it's immediately clear that... It's a video game. I think even to to someone who maybe doesn't know that, like the weirdness going on. Well, I suppose part of it is that you go into the film knowing at least that that okay. this is about this is based on a video game or based. I on think it. you told me that it was based on a video game, well, and I just thought, yeah, and I just thought, you know, it's based on a video game, yeah. like you know, Ready Player One or whatever, you know. But this is different in the sense that it, you know, there's the world of the video game, and then there's the outside world of players who actually control the video game. Yeah. yeah, but what I mean is you're saying like it's that it you you suggested that it, it was kind of a revelation that oh this is a video game world. Well, it's Whereas, a revelation that the film offers you, and maybe I misjudged. Maybe it's yeah. you know ten minutes into the film rather than I thought it was more like twenty or thirty. But you know. Whatever. But what I mean is, do you think it functions as a revelation? I thought it was kind of obvious immediately. That what to me what the what the revelation was that actually we're going to get to see the outside world more than I thought. Um. I mean, it's not like, oh, you know, this blows my world. <laughs> but it is uh, it is an interplay. It is a change because you begin with the game mm. as the world. And then kind of you realize that, no, you know, the world is something other than the game. And actually, you know, there's a narrative which revolves around the inventors of the game. Yeah. You know, and also the community playing that game and the corporate structure that actually owns and controls that game. And then the effects that that has in the world of the game itself. Mm. Yeah, and then the interplay between all those various elements. I mean, I think it's an interestingly and complexly structured film. The interplay between <coughs> the real world and the video game world is 
really, really like the Truman Show, I think. And I think the film is yes. deliberately invoking that to the point where, as Guy, that's his name, starts to learn more and more and realise more and more about the fakeness of the world that he's in, the construction of it, that it's that you know he's an NPC, he goes to the edge of the city, to the beach, and that is exactly like, spoilers for the Truman Show, the end of the Truman Show where Truman sails. Mm finally leaves and comes across the wall that's painted to look like the sky. Mm. It's exactly like that. He throws a stone in this and it, and it hits like a, a force field. That's his realisation that that um, yeah, everything he's been told uh, is true, that he, that it is this constructed world. So it's very deliberately invoking the Truman Show and I think what it's missing from the Truman Show is that existential woe. You know, like it's all, that's, the Truman Show is all about... Do I have free will? Who is my creator? What is this? Who am I? What's, <laughs> you know, what is my existence? Is everything a lie? And this could have all of that, but it's ultimately... And, and actually, I think Ryan Reynolds conveys some of it. I mean, some of it's merely meant to be there. It tries to do a lot of that. But it never fully sells it. To me, that feels like a missed... I suppose a little bit of a missed emotional opportunity. I mean, it's clearly been inspired by it, or it's clearly a reference point to it. I think this film is trying to do something very different. Yeah. It's not trying to plump emotional depths the way that the Truman Show did. No, no. Uh, you know, I, I saw this as, you know, kind of... I mean, I think that this is a very uh, interesting film because I saw it as a kind of a romance. Yeah, it's a male romance in many ways. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a romance that's uh, focused on male desire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but a male desire for romance, yeah, it's never sexy in the traditional sense, yeah. No. It is about romantic longing, right? But of course, it's displaced, yeah, you know, from the the real world onto the game, and then you know, back onto the real world. Um, but again, it's so interesting because it begins. I thought it would be like a comic action film, and then again, halfway through, it be, yeah, it kind of it becomes uh, to me. Uh, almost like a kind of a romantic comedy or something, right? Yeah. Well, so this, so initially the romance develops between Guy and Millie, who is this girl who's coming into the game looking for this evidence. She made this original game, mm. which had this AI system, and that's kind of what they discover has actually been. You know, he is this AI system come to life, come to fruition. It's really mm. worked. He's learned and developed. And he's a real person, effectively. Mm. Um, and yeah, romance develops between them. And then, of course, what the film ends up doing is splitting, it splits them up. They can't mm. live together. How can they be together? They live in different worlds. And she realises her relationship, her ultimate love mm. with the guy she co-created the game with, which I thought was quite sweet. If, if sort of, I think it's more than sweet. Actually, I was very surprised, you know, because, you know, Ryan Reynolds is a star, right? And, you know, he is a romantic star. Yeah, he's a he's a a sex symbol, yeah, and so on. And actually to give away the romance mm. yeah, to a subsidiary character is very unusual. Yeah. You know, so... I suppose so, yeah. Um, you know, he, he basically, I mean, this is spoilers, but at the end he says, well, I am only the characteristics that, you know, were written on me by, yeah, kind of, you know, this guy that you invented the game with. So I thought that was interesting because it shifts it on to... You know, someone who is not only from another world, but also much younger, and yeah, mm-hmm. and also the star giving it over to the supporting characters and so on. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And I, th- I think there's something. He's a self-effacing sort of star, 
in that respect, actually. Mm. I think it's something, that, and I think that maybe goes along with being a comic persona. You know, if you're a comic persona, then you can end up sort of losing, right? Because that can be funny, right? Very often is funny. You want, like, like it's that thing about, especially in, in British comedy, you always want to be the guy who's getting shouted at because that's funnier than being the guy doing the shouting, for instance. Mm. Um, and there's a little bit of that in this. I mean, otherwise, you know, it's just a different film and a more conventional film would have had him get the girl, mm. effectively. As opposed to, well, I suppose he, I suppose he sort of gets the girl in this, but his ultimate thing is to give her away. Yeah, it's interesting because the film nonetheless doesn't want to let go of Ryan Reynolds. So the Ryan Reynolds thing is there's this self-effacement, right? But on the other hand, I mean, one of the things that made Ryan Reynolds famous was uh, the proposal with Sandra Bullock, right? And, you know, particularly that scene where he appears kind of naked. Yeah, like, I haven't you know, seen it. Okay, well, you know, he's got this incredible body and the towel falls down and right. she sees it and that's one of the things that begins their connection in the proposal. And I thought it was very interesting in this film because he's self-effacing, he's a nerd and whatever, but you know, he's always fully clothed, mm. right? He never takes his shirt off or anything, but you could see what an incredible body he's got. Yeah, mm-hmm. that the film highlights, yeah. The shirts he's wearing are clingy shirts <coughs> that show off his muscles. So I, you know, the, the he, he is presented as sexually desirable, right? Uh, which, you know, the younger inventor of the algorithm, yeah, he's sweet and attractive and so on, but yeah, he's not presented as like, no. yeah. And I also thought that was interesting in, in, in terms of comics because... Again, I'm having trouble to think of, you know, famous comics of previous generations who were sexy. Yeah, Richard Pryor wasn't. Stephen, what's his name, Martin. Steve, Steve Martin, Martin wasn't. Uh, Bill Murray wasn't. The, the person who, contra- who, you know, would contradict me is, uh, what's his name, Coming to America, the big black star. Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy mm-hmm. was sexy. You know, I mean, again, not to me, but he, he yeah, was, yeah, yeah. you know, he was... Uh, uh, considered very sexy, but he's the only person. But he, and his his sexiness was an aggressive one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas this combination of self-effacement and nerdiness and sexiness is interesting and unusual. Um, yeah, and again, particularly considering this relay of handing over the romantic interest, yeah, you know, to a younger, yeah, man in the film. Mm. But of course, he gets his ending with. His friend, the security guard, yes, uh-huh. um, played by Lil Ral Howery. I had a problem with his character insofar as he's the token comedy black friend. Yes, I mean it's it's such a it's such a basic trope, and obviously the film is to some degree built on tropes actually because it's it's talking about culture. It's built out of culture. Yes, and there's a whole element of like games as male fantasy. Mm. So actually, when you get to to the end, and Ryan Reynolds is he's having to fight that big macho version of himself and he starts he, he, he starts realising the true extent of his abilities with these glasses and all the things he has at his disposal and so on um, he gets a lightsaber and again this is full of references so it's a 20th century Fox film 20th century Fox were bought by Disney so all of a sudden they had access to Avengers yeah, Star, to the, Wars, Star Wars so he gets a lightsaber he gets uh, the Incredible Hulk <coughs> Fist he gets a portal gun from the game Portal he gets a gravity gun from the game Half-Life 2 Things that you recognise, you know, guns from other games and things. And actually, I was thinking, God, it would be so much fun to play this. You know, I bet Ryan Reynolds had a fucking, <laughs> an amazing, 
uh, an amazing time doing it because he gets to play this fantasy of all this all this male power stuff mm. and also playing stuff that he knows as well. I'm sure he knows these games. But, so it would be a huge amount of fun to do this as an actor, you know. But I thought it's it's also playing on it is playing on this kind of male fantasy. Like ultimately, this is a, th- these games, these multiplayer nuts, uh, kind of online action games, are for little boys basically. I'm going to say little boys. I include people as old as me, mm. <laughs> you know, but it's the mentality, <clears throat> you know, the mentality. It's the it's the incel mentality basically. And I'm thinking, and th- this is uh, quite a generalisation, but essentially saying it's not for girls. These games aren't for girls, and it's not to say that they're not suitable for girls, but. Girls, generally speaking, aren't as interested, and they also and also, video game culture is extremely toxic and sexist towards women. Mm. And if you show up as a woman, you're going to be chased down, you're going to be doxxed, you're going to be sent dick pics, mm. you're going to be hounded out of the community. You know, you have, have to hide yourself. Really, things I guess are probably always improving, and the younger generation is probably nicer. But it's still a really nasty place to be for women. And obviously, the film really has no interest in expressing any of that. Because you'd been so well, critiques it. You've been so well. It does a tiny little bit. So, so Jodie Comer's character has a line where she talks about. Yeah. She says, "Oh, the adolescent man child, man children, and then the only real person I meet is a program." And but then there's that, and I'm not defending it because there's that bit where Ryan Reynolds mansplains to the blonde woman or the blonde yeah character NPC. Yeah, how she can you know make herself free, yeah. <laughs> which. Was like, <laughs> a, a real archetypal mansplaining, example. and I think what ultimately the film says is, is it basically tries to say oh, women are as interested in this game as men, and or this type of game as men, and let's talk no more about it. Mm. Was actually, I think, really you get the impression this is just a very, very male place to be. Mm. This game, I think, you know, it, it like I say, it really shaves off all of that toxicity and all of that aggression because it doesn't show you the game really in any more detail. Mm. It's, it's it's quite a general thing. One of the things that occurred to me when watching the film is that I think, you know, there's definitely some implied critique of capitalism, yeah, in the figure of the Taiki Waititi character. Mm-hmm. There's kind of an implied critique of the relationship between, you know, the fictional world and the real world, yeah, that whole trip beyond the confines of the world, the bridge that mm-hmm. goes, that hides the algorithm beyond. Um, the idea that you have free agency, but in fact you are just being attacked by people behind masks and <laughs> gaming consoles. Uh, the fact that you know the appearance or the reality of the powerful people beyond the gaming consoles is insulty and weak and living with their mom, right? Like, mm. uh, um, I mean, you know, the idea that all of these worlds are contained in. What are those? What do they call those last things where everything is stored? Servers. The servers. Um, I mean, uh, actually, in, in some ways, it, it relates. It can be related quite a bit to something like the Matrix. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's a lot of Matrix in it. Um, I I was thinking about when it comes to the end. I was thinking, oh, this is a really creationist film because ultimately it's about you know the, the people who, who who run this world who have power over it are like gods and monsters. Mm. You know, they can change things at a whim they can delete things as, and ultimately it's about the kind of apocalypse as they start smashing up the servers Taika Waititi starts smashing up the servers the whole city inside starts to crumble things get deleted um, and even before then though he's been you know kind of manipulating the world at his whim trying to do this that, and the other and it's about the kind of it's about the the, the the jump at free will 
and consciousness that Guy makes, you know, kind of kind of combating that. And ultimately, what so they're thinking like, oh, this is going to be really American, right? Freedom, freedom is everything. Let's get my freedom from this world. Mm. And ultimately, what does, what do you end up with? He's got freedom of a sort, right? So he's in this really nice world, which is created by Jodie Comer and and the the, the other creator of the game. Um, it's a really nice place for them to be. They don't have to be scared of getting shot and just killed and, and blown up every day by aggressive players. They just get to be themselves. There are no players in this game. It's all AI characters. Um, there are dinosaurs and forests and, and mountains. And it's beautiful and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it's nice, but it's not free. He's still a prisoner, right? And he's still and just because the god is now benevolent doesn't mean he's not still existing at the whim of a god and I, was, and I was thinking god this is like a really creation like ultimately what have we got here a good god that provides and he's good to, but I was thinking this is like that's why I asked you in the restaurant just after we finished and said is Ryan Reynolds Christian oh. <laughs> so I was thinking like this is a really Christian sort of funny old ending to this ah oh, right I, it hadn't occurred to me in the sense you know because you know what happens is that the route to freedom is love and actually that is how you have like the self-generating artificial life. It's caused by love, right? By feelings for others. Um, and I just saw the world at the end as an externalization of his own fantasies. And what I thought that was, was interesting about his own fantasies of an ideal world is how it was a hodgepodge of popular culture of you know Jurassic Park and you know Disney films and mm. you know things like that, um, but I didn't. So I didn't see it as a creationist world because I saw that world as extern an externalization of Free Guy's own images. Yeah. Uh, I think that bit where we talk about how love is the kind of the generating thing that that brings his his kind of self determination to life is really beautifully expressed when you mm. see you see a subroutine on a screen and it's just this cycle of like a flow chart, get up, get a coffee, go to work, go home, go to sleep, you know. Mm. And then when it goes to meet the girl of my dreams, it, it explodes into this kind of, it's like a flower, it's a like multicolored, all these different strands come branching off and it's beautiful. It's mm. a really beautiful expression of like what this girl can do to him. Um, I think that's lovely. Um, <laughs> but yeah, at the end, I'm, think, I'm still thinking like he's just a different kind of prisoner now. Mm. He can only get so much freedom. Whereas you think about the end of like Tron Legacy, the Tron reboot that they did, or sequel reboot, where the guy, the kids, goes into the game and then he ends up emerging from the game with Cora, is it? The mm. um, Olivia 13 from House. The Olivia, what's her name character? I can't remember. The Olivia Thingy character. She's a computer program and he manages to bring her out into the real world there's a f mechanism for that in the, in the film that's real freedom right you know he she gets to escape the confines of the game that's not what's possible here it's rather than escaping you're still living at the whims of a benevolent all-powerful god who could still turn it off if she wanted to yes the servers could still go off it's true even though there is now life in them yeah uh that it extends beyond uh, the creators. Maybe there's uh, like an abortion thing in there as well because it becomes about ending a life. That's what that's what it becomes about, you know. That's interesting. Taika Waititi is it has no interest it's in the it. evil abortionist. To, the evil abortionist, right? <laughs> you know? uh, 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 and she's uh, and she's the protester outside um, <laughs> uh, Planned Parenthood. Uh, 
One of the things that I thought was really good about the film was the use of music. What did you think? I didn't occur to me. Ah. What did you notice? Well, I noticed the kind of 70s poppiness, the, you know, the bright uh, Mamas and the Papas song that was used. And then, of course, you know, the Mariah Carey song that becomes both something discussed in the film and that also overlays the end credits. And the way that that's kind of threaded throughout the film, actually. Do you know what I did notice? What? Is that when they brought up the Mariah Carey song at the end, it comes up in dialogue, I thought, is that something I should have noticed? Yes. But yeah. well, possibly I didn't recognise the song, but also I really didn't notice the use of music, I must say. It, it, it did not stand out to me at all. Oh, I did. Mamas and the Poppers as well. Was it California Dreaming that they used? Um, no. Right. Uh, um, I wouldn't probably recognise it. I can't, you know, we can look up the soundtrack. Um, but I just like the, you know, the type of, like, shiny, optimistic pop song that was used. Right. You know, uh, yeah, that goes with the look of the film, actually, mm. which, you know, which has... You know that that palette of like sky blue and white and you know yellowish beige and yeah it's a very particular oh, it's almost like a watercolor palette really yeah uh, which I liked very much because you can imagine how a film based on a video game it could have been all shiny chrome blue oh yeah, well, yeah like steel Trump. yeah so um, this was like a um, you know I, th- I thought a wonderful choice. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, it, it it has a look of something like The Sims, which is about or Sim City building these cities that kind of live for themselves. And there's definitely an element of that in how this fictional video game works as well. A city that just kind of runs itself, hmm. um, where the characters seem to have inner lives. And the, the, the light visual design is a lot like that. Hmm. Um, whereas something like Grand Theft Auto or Fortnite is either more poppy or more gritty or trying to do something different. Mm. Whereas this is actually, it's like a family-friendly game. The way, you know, the, with the, the colour palette is family-friendly and then all the guns are not so much. But that's the thing about video games as well. Like, Fortnite is aimed at kids, basically, and it's all guns and explosions and grenades everywhere. And yet, it's, you know, you, you 10-year-old kid playing it. It's probably not. It's probably a 12-rated game or 15-rated even. But that doesn't make... You know, the BBFC does have video game ratings. So all the Grand Theft Auto games are 18-rated. That's never made a difference. All it meant is that you couldn't buy it in a shop. Because, like, trying to go to the cinema and buy a ticket for an 18-rated film when you're 14, it's not going to happen. But you can still download them. It, I mean, those ratings functionally mean nothing these days. I never really did with video games. You get your mum to buy it. That's the thing. You get your mum to buy it, and your mum wouldn't have the clue. You know, uh-huh. can, can I have this Grand Theft Auto thing? How old's your kid? Oh, he's nine. Oh, well, I suppose I suppose you can, because you're an adult. <laughs> but you don't so, know what you're buying your kid. Um, the song I was thinking about, uh, and actually, you know, my view is kind of reaffirmed by the song list. It was uh, Cass Elliot, yeah, Mama Cass of the oh, Mamas yeah. and the Papas, who sang, make your own kind of music. Yeah, that, that right. pops up. Fred Astaire crops up in Cheek to Cheek. Uh... The other thing uh, that I had uh, in mind was Frankie Valli, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, and then, you know, kind of seventh, Ain't No Stopping Us Now, and then the Mariah Carey song, which is fantasy, yeah? So, yeah. You know, I know some of those songs, and it, they did not even, yeah, did not even occur to me that, that that's what they were playing them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought it was right. very clever, the, what they were doing with them, actually. So, um... Where was my head? Yes, where was your head? I don't know. Engaged in the narrative. That's a good thing. Well, I suppose so. <laughs> Think, thinking about the narrative, 
you know, mostly this really worked for me. And actually, I really didn't expect... I thought, oh, he'll be a bit contrived and all this. And actually, even the story outside the game with the kind of legal fight and the moral fight for the ownership of the game and all this actually really worked for me. And I was going with it quite a lot. Um, I liked it and I liked the three young actors yeah, playing the roles of the tech people. Yeah. Yes. Uh, very um, appealing. There were one or two things inside the game world that didn't work for me. Although ultimately, it's like it's basically constructed like a magic world, right? So it's quite smart because if you know video games, then you'd be watching it going, "Well, it doesn't really work like this." You know, video game characters can't do this. That's not how it works. They they can't really act free. But of course, the fundamental idea is that he's an AI that's coming to life, mm. so he would act differently. That's why you know. So there's there's license for freedom essentially mm. in what the film wants to show, what it wants what it wants to do. So that kind of worked fine. Um, there were one or two things, though, that I had a problem with that I thought were executed badly. Or, try, or they try and kind of force things past you a little bit, or slip them past you. So he gets the glasses initially when he's first kind of realising he can do different things. He puts the glasses on, he sees all these messages overlaid onto the world. And so he kind of learns about the world there, right? And then he meets uh, the girl character and she explains a little bit more about what he can do and all this when she thinks he's a real player and just not very good at the game. Mm. Um, but then later, he kind of has to re like learn it all over again because that's when she reveals to him it's all fake and it's a video game. And I think they, th that is learning two separate things, but... It leaves me thinking, oh, well, if he didn't really realise that early on, then what was he realising? You know, what, what was his conception of the world when he could do all this stuff that was effectively magic, making stuff appear out of nowhere, seeing all these messages? What did he... The, the film doesn't do a good job of... I didn't mind that. I, I didn't mind. I, mean, I did let it go. But I think it's something that the film actually tries to sneak past you that it's sort of doing the same thing twice with different emotional reactions. I, I'm not... Well, I don't know. I mean, I... I, I yeah, it didn't occur to me that that was a problem. He kisses her, right, and it's a really beautiful scene where they get the bubblegum ice cream and they kiss. But it's quite explicit there that there's no kiss button, right? He says, "I want to kiss you," and she goes, "If you know how." Mm. Effectively meaning that there's, you can't do that in the game. But he, being part of the game, has figured out how to do it. He does it, and it's well because he's now. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm saying it's really good. But then to make him remember everything when he's been deleted, she has to kiss him. Well, that is something the film really tries to fly past you because she's kissing. It, it's, it's been explicit. She can't do that. There's no button for it. That is something that in the moment uh, I thought, oh, come on. Right, okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I get it now. She's kissed him and there's no button, so come on. Um, a last thing that I want to mention and that I noticed was how good and useful the credits were. And it made me realize how. You know, because I often I leave the film as soon as the film ends, and the reason why is because the credits never give me what I want, right? Whereas this one, you know, was great. You know, it was directed by this person. That person did the set design. That person did the costumes. That person did the cinematography. That person did the editing, and that person did the music. That's what enables you to talk about all the main functions of the film, <laughs> instead of having like twenty five thousand producers and then. You know, like uh, the all the people who worked in the music, or all the drivers on the set in Montreal, or like I don't need to know the names of that. That is for the people who worked on the film, yeah. yeah. And the people who worked on the film have different needs than the people who are watching the film. And I wish films would give us what we as viewers need 
to discuss the film and give people credit for what they've done, even in general terms. And I thought this film did it very well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I think you... Uh, you know, it, sometimes it frustrates you when you walk off immediately after the end of the film. And it's only because... Well, it's partly because you always say, I'll see you outside. And I'm like, I know you'll see me outside. <laughs> but just, just leave silently. You're really on the spectrum about that. I'm just, just being polite. Just leave silently. <laughs> Fucking hell. But the other thing is that, like, you, um, because cause now these days there are two sets of credits in films. Mm. There's the first set of credits, which is where you still have movie making going on, where the credits are fancy and there's graphics behind them and all that kind of stuff. And then there's just white text scrolling up on black for the rest of the credits and in between them there's normally a mid-credits scene you know and there isn't in this um although apparently they are gearing up for a sequel because the film's done quite well um but i'm like that like there's actually a new way to watch credits i suppose these days i probably since it's probably the marvel movies that have done it really because they're all about giving you the teaser for the next thing yeah these and that's how they structure it i know but i hate it and i find it very punitive because you know you're forced to watch endless you know, uh, minutes of information you're really completely uninterested <laughs> in, right? Uh, but I'm talking even before the bulk of the credits, the scrolling, you get, like, the there's, like, a section of the credits which is sort of special credits to still be watching. Well, no, I get that. You know I mean? But even within that, yeah. there's a lot of useless information. I'm not interested in the 25 producers who worked in the film. Yeah. It actually doesn't help me talk about the film or yeah yeah uh, uh, whereas I am interested in finding out who the cinematographer is who did the music who did the costume design who did the set designs mm. yeah who, yeah those are to me like the essential kind yeah. of you know aspects of the, of the film and often you have to wade through endless producer credits or whatever to get those bits of information sure well I mean you're right in that in that the the special funky credits in this do contain those. Yeah, and, and like immediately after the film, almost like in order of importance. I mean, mm. you know, that I would sit and watch, right? Yeah, you know. But I do wish that uh, when we saw when we got to see Endgame, you had stuck around for those special credits and that because because you left immediately, and those were the credits that were. Have you seen them since? Where they're all signed their names on the characters. No. It's hid. I'm going to show you in a minute. Hideous, revolting. You would have hated <laughs> it. It was it was absurd that they were signing their characters oh it made with the stories ended we are wonderful people signed the avengers Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> i'll show you in a minute it's brilliant uh, i really rather like free guy i, I think i think video games ever since they were invented in the late 60s early 70s have been sort of making their way into a mass culture and b the movies mm. and for a while that was things like war games and tron you know, and the video games obviously a lot more rudimentary back then. And there was there, there was this kind of growing, this growing understanding of what video games were. But they still ultimately everything was about kids. They were for kids these things. And in the last few years, with like I say, Ready Player One, uh, the Jumanji reboots, Wreck It Ralph, because video games have now become this billion-dollar industry, multi-billion industry that's, that's so culturally dominant. I think it's it's a larger industry now than, than film. Yeah. I think, yeah. Um, um, Money-wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's this new generation of video game movies and what a video game movie is, is changing and the way that people understand the culture is changing and in some respect, the problem for someone like you, who grew up with no interest in video games and also grew up when video games weren't anything like they are now. They've evolved so much. Um 
is you know, the, the the problem is trying to understand that to some degree. Um, I mean, I think I. Well, two things, right? I mean, I think a you can't be interested in everything. The world is too big, right? And also, as you get older, you. Um, I remember having this conversation with you know Richard Dyer, where he was you know he was saying he was rereading, or he was reading for the first time some of the uh, Russian classics, mm. you know. And one of the things he said, which stuck with me, was, you know, that he was getting old and that, you know, time was at a premium and that if, if he didn't read those things now, he just never would, right? Mm. So either as you get older, you become not less curious, but less wasteful, you know? So, I mean, for example, when I was younger, I would read, like, all these trash novels and, you know, not only detective novels, but, you know, Daniel Steele romances and, yeah, like, you're just... And I was curious about it because they were on the bestsellers list and, you know, and so on. I mean, actually, I no longer read that stuff. I just feel I don't have time. Yeah, mm. like, I mean, I do very much read for pleasure, but my pleasures are different. But also, you know, you feel you're running out of time. So uh, you can't be interested in everything. So, you know, I don't mind not knowing about certain things or, mm. you know, well, obviously you realize you, you never knew about, you know, everything. So I don't mind not knowing. In fact, I've realized that, you know, it's true even of interpersonal relationships. There are just some things you will never know, and that's okay, you know. But the other thing is that I found it surprisingly easy to watch. Yeah. yeah. The, so I think this is, in a way, an ideal film. So, you know, if you don't know anything about video games, uh, you know, but are interested in what they might signify or, or, or enact or be like... Or, you know, uh, then this is an ideal film to do it because I don't feel you need to know very much about them to follow the film. And also the way that they're integrated into mass media and mass culture. They are mass media and mass culture. So in this film, there are YouTubers featured yes. who are all real YouTubers. I recognised a couple of them. There's an Irish guy who, uh, I think his name's Sean, and his username is uh, Jack Septic Eye. And I came across him recently because looking for a walkthrough, looking for a uh, looking for like a let's play of this game, which mm -hmm. I wasn't interested in playing. I was looking for someone who had played it, so I could just see what happens. Mm. <laughs> and he'd done one, uh, so I watched him. And there's a guy called Dan TDM who I've never watched. He's in this though, and I recognise you know his username shows up on on YouTube in the film. These guys are a big part of video game culture. These right. guys are recognised, you know, and kids seeing these this film will recognise these guys. Watching video games online is almost as big as playing them, frankly. Yes, it's really huge. And there's, there's interesting, yeah. the first kind of big YouTube was a guy called PewDiePie, who's from Sweden, maybe. Um, and I think the reason he's not in this is because he ended up kind of with some controversies. Right. And I think he said the N-words and then like, tried right. to claim he wasn't racist and all this sort of stuff. Um, but these guys are represented in here. They get parts. I mean, it's actually, they're filmed. They're filmed like movie stars. I mean, I think they're filmed with their own setups, probably. You know, But, right. they, but these people have professional video streaming setups wow. with nice lighting and all this. Um, but they've been given, you know, parts in a movie. I was thinking there's one part with it's Jack Septicai, the Irish guy. At one point, he gets his big close up, and they're all the idea is they're all watching this stuff happen in the game as the the all this chaos kind of comes to comes to a head, and he gets a shot, and I was like, wow, that's a movie star shot mm. for a YouTuber, you know. Mm. So I was saying to you, not essentially probably a couple of years ago, that although as you say you really can't know everything, you can't be interested in everything. The way in which people consume media and the kind of media they consume is changing very, very seriously. And YouTube 
is a huge, huge driver of that. Well, you and, know how I became conscious of that? Yeah. Um, I had trouble getting home one day because all of the roads to Birmingham city center were blocked. And the reason they were blocked is because there was a 19 year old YouTube makeup artist mm -hmm. who was at the bull ring doing a demonstration. And so he yeah. was an American YouTuber who had like millions of followers mm -hmm. and so many fans that actually the fans had blocked yeah, all the main entrances into the center. Yeah. They're just the queues of people waiting to get into the bull ring. And actually... Someone I had no idea of, wasn't on television, <laughs> yeah. wasn't in the newspapers. You know, it was all YouTube. And that's what the kids are watching. And, and actually, it does make me think uh, to some degree about the corporate structure within the film, the corporate structure of the company. Mm. Because we're all saying about, oh, this is very kind of creationist, you live at the whim of your creator in this mm. world. That is really how YouTubers live with respect to YouTube. Mm. You know, like, I mean, there are other video platforms, but functionally, there aren't. Mm. So there's YouTube and there's Twitch, which is a, a live streaming thing, which is where a lot of these people kind of mm. made their name and, and they all broadcast there. But like every time YouTube changes the rules about something, they're up in arms. Mm. This is how they make their living. And there is no option, basically. Like you're not, you're not going to end up going to Vimeo. It just doesn't work like that. So YouTube has this all-powerful position over them mm. and doesn't have any responsibility towards them, wants to use them, but it's a, it's a very similar relationship, ultimately, to what all the NPCs have in this film mm. with, with the company that runs them. All right. Shall we wrap it up here? <laughs> mm. Right. Um, so I really recommend it. Uh, I love the look of it. It moved well. Ryan Reynolds is a delight, uh, as is the supporting cast. And uh, uh, the fact that I don't know anything about video games was not a barrier to enjoying the film at all. So I highly recommend. And the fact that I do know things about video games rendered the film more enjoyable. It didn't sort of do things that I thought, oh, well, you don't know what you're talking about. And at the same time, I didn't mind that it made various changes or did things that wouldn't necessarily make sense. It's all built into the logic of the film. If you're a reasonable person, you're happy with that. And it obviously likes and doesn't want to disappoint or insult its uh, audience a of video game players. Sorry. A final thing that I want to say is that, there, you know, every film is, um, is, is like a kaleidoscope or something. Or, you know, it requires different sets of knowledges from the audience. And one of the things that I'm always wary of is that there is a generational difference. So, for example, if you're looking at a film from the 1940s, there's sets of knowledges, who are the stars, what are they referring to, what is the depression, whatever, right? That, you know, the film is enhanced, or sometimes, actually, the film requires you to have those knowledges, right? And I think people of my generation always think, oh, well, of course, you know, they take that knowledge for granted and kind of look askance at younger people for not knowing those things. And this is a film that works the other way around, that it also requires, you know, or, or the experience of the film is enhanced by other sets of knowledges. It right? rewards them. Yeah. So I think it's actually not that different than watching other kinds of films. Mm. Yeah. It's, you know, except that, you know, people of my generation might not have as easy access to those extra filmic knowledges. 
yeah, that we do with older films. And that, to me, would be a reason to see it, not a reason to shy away from it. Mm. Always be open to new things. Yes. Even though, <laughs> even, though, even though we're never, ever going to play The Last of Us together, which is a shame because they're really good well, stories. Well, you know, yeah, whatever. All right, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>